Southern Skies. Online Media. Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's ultimate CASA-approved electronic flight bag for iPad. Try it free for the first 30 days, ozrunways.com. And by the Australian Aerobatic Academy, the leaders in primary and advanced flight training at Bankstown and Wollongong. See how they can take your proficiency to the next flight level at aeroacademy.com.au. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 117 of Australia's Aviation Show. I'm Steve Vischer, joining me as always my good friend and co-host, Mr. Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, g'day, Mr. Vischer. Yeah, hi, how's it going, man? So formal, so formal. It must be early in the week when we're recording this and so soon after the last one. You know, we used to do this all the time. I know, I know. We used to be uh, putting episodes out quite frequently and uh, then we got uh, hit by reality and who knew, something came along and I actually managed to get a whole lot of editing done. Yes, well, and, and you've done a great job in this episode, folks. I tell you what, this is almost an entirely produced by Grant McHeron episode. I I like the way these work. (laughs) Yes, uh, lots of hours and only a few minutes of your work. Hey, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I like the way you think, McHeron. Thanks, man. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, This th- actually, there is a lot of content in this show, stuff that's been recorded over the last uh, months. In fact, uh, probably even a couple that were recorded towards the end of last year. But, uh, boy, there's been such a backlog and so much great content, it was really hard to uh, sort it out. But, uh, Grant, let's kick it off by talking about uh, this weekend's upcoming events down there at Point Cook in Victoria. That's the one, mate. It's the Centenary of Military Aviation Air Show for the Royal Australian Air Force being held at RAF Base Williams, uh, which is, of course, at Point Cook at the uh, RW. Museum. So, uh, yeah, they're celebrating 100 years since the first uh, uh, flight of a box kite by an Australian at Point Cook. And uh, Point Cook, of course, uh, the world's longest running continuous operation military airbase. And, uh, yeah, they're going to have quite the range. There'll be a replica of the box kite. There'll be a BE-2 replica on static. Hopefully the box kite will fly if the uh, weather conditions allow. And uh, they're going to have a number of older aircraft. Some are coming in from uh, Tamora. There's a few that they'll have on static display from the collection at the museum. Uh, we might get a few coming in from uh, perhaps from Tyab and uh, Haas are talking about coming down from uh, Wollongong with their aircraft. So quite the range of RAAF aircraft, past, present, and even a uh, mock-up of a JSF. So there'll be future there as well. So lots of stuff. I'm quite looking forward to seeing how the uh, Super Hornet demo goes, but also just looking forward to uh, catching up with friends and seeing a whole lot of people and hopefully recording a bit of content. Absolutely. And uh, I could think of no better place to celebrate aviation in general in this country than uh, Point Cook, uh, not only the birthplace of uh, military aviation, but uh, I'll tell you what, it's launched a lot of careers once they've got out of the Air Force and people that we know very well. That's right right, mate. There's uh, quite a number of folks we've caught up with, a few of whom we've even had on the show, who uh, owe a lot of their start to the RAAF. That's very true. Now, we'll put some links in the show notes. I uh, just wanted to mention the ticket prices here, Grant. Uh, pretty reasonable, I'd say. I tell you for uh, what, what you get for your dollar. Uh, an adult for $30, children aged uh, 5 to 15, $10, or a family ticket, two adults and two children, $76. And uh, I tell you what, fantastic. We can get a media pass like we have, but we're going to be working, Grant. It's all about work. <laughs> That's right, mate. It's all about the work, but uh, we'll make 
make it happen. So the air show is looking pretty good. There's been a lot of uh, effort going into promoting it. Uh, we had just the recent C-130J media flight that our boys were on. And in fact, last episode, we had some of the content from that. And of course, we have the uh, video that Stephen Pam put together from the adventure. That's available on our YouTube channel, of course. And I think uh, you also posted it on Facebook. And towards the end of last year, I uh, went out to Point Cook for the official kickoff of the uh, preparations. And uh, two of the interviews that I recorded there, one was with Air Vice Marshal Leo Davies. He's uh, the Deputy Chief of Air Force. Uh, so I had a quick chat with him about uh, the show coming up, but also about what his role involves. And uh, then also managed to record an interview with uh, Air Vice Marshal retired Mark Skidmore, who uh, is the test pilot for the Bristol Box Kite. So I had a great chat with him about what that was like. And uh, having spoken to people who have flown uh, replicas in the past, including Wright Flyer replicas and the Curtis Pusher replica back in the States, uh, I was able to uh, really start comparing some notes with them about uh, you know drag effect and uh, how she handles and so on. It was it was great hearing the comparisons with between that and uh, some of the other aircraft. Then there was also uh, late last year, I was in Tamora for the Warbirds Down Under and I have got a stack of content that I recorded there over a few days and uh, I've started bringing some of that out. Uh, a bit of a bridge here because we've got uh, Air Marshal Mark Binskin, the Vice Chief of the Defence Force. He talks about his career, the role as Vice Chief of Defence Force, but also uh, flying his O-1 bird dog. And, uh, you know, get the feeling from that chat that he uh, rather enjoyed it. Hey, mate. It certainly did. He, uh, You know, it's, it's interesting when we do interviews like this because uh, we can talk to them about other things besides uh, what they might expect. You know, tell us what it's like to fly a Hornet. Well, he's probably told that story a million times. So talking about uh, flying, you know, stick and rudder and that sort of stuff, I'm sure he really did appreciate that. It certainly sounded like he enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, he uh, also very much appreciated the fact that we weren't talking about uh, immigration, boat people and so on. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> of no interest to this podcast whatsoever. <laughs> exactly. This is back in October, November, it was uh, becoming quite the topical subject and he was involved in it from coordinating the military aspects. So we, we were happy to leave that topic alone on both sides of the uh, microphone. But uh, then the second block that we've got in the show is a collection of uh, content recorded at Tamora. Um, the first one up is a chat I had with Keith Webb, who's putting together the Unsung Heroes Project. They're recording interviews on video with veterans, primarily World War II, but also, of course, Korea, Vietnam, and uh, more modern engagements, including, of course, have had Matt Hall, who talks about what it was like to be flying an F-15 during uh, combat in Iraq. From there, we go on to a chat I recorded with Captain Jack Curtis. Uh, I've known Jack for quite a while. I first met him when uh, I was helping out with the restoration of a Lockheed 10, and he was the designated pilot for it. I uh, wound up helping him out with a few tasks on DC-3s and uh, learning the fun way that the main reason I was there was because I was to man the wobble pump to help prime the engines because <laughs> <laughs> it didn't have a booster pump or anything. But Jack, uh, renowned pilot, uh, he's he's just turned 89. He still has his commercial pilot's license, and he although he only flies as number two these days, not sold or primary pilot but uh, the joke at one point was that uh, Jack was the uh, only pilot flying DC-3s who was older than the aircraft he was flying so a real classic character and a great quick chat with him also caught up with Dick Sims uh, flew Mustangs Vampires Meteors and so on back as a cadet with the RAAF um, he has Orion and if you've been listening to Wings Over New Zealand you would have heard Dave chatting with Noel Cruz about his adventures getting Orion well Dick's Ryan came from a batch just after Knowles, so quite the chat there. And we wrap up that segment with a uh, chat with Mick Haxel, who uh, was awarded the DFC for his efforts flying helicopters during Vietnam. He wound up going from the military to uh, CASA, 
and then, well, as it was then, CAA, and uh, has now wound up with Flight Safety and doing some work with them. Fantastic. I tell you what, folks, uh, I think Grant actually on that outing to Tamora, what was that, Grant, about last November, December, something like that? Uh, yeah, early, just the start of November. I think you actually set the uh, plane crazy down under record for the most interviews by a single interviewer uh, <laughs> in the one time. I think, well, I think I topped out at 27, I think, 27 or something interviews you did that day? Yeah, there were 27 blocks of content at least. There was actually more than that, but some of them were second stages and there was one that was uh, an incorrect that recorded accidentally. But yeah, 27 usable chats um, <laughs> at least on that one. And uh, yeah, recorded over a couple of days of uh, pretty full on effort. It was quite draining, but well worth it. Absolutely. And we're going to, this is not all about uh, Grant McCarran talking to really cool people. <laughs> I actually got to talk to somebody very cool myself for this episode. And in the uh, the final block of this uh, show, in fact, uh, I'll be talking to Tammy Augustin and uh, she is the Australian team leader for the upcoming Women of Aviation Week. And we had a great half hour chat there about uh, that and also about, uh, you know, flying jets at Reno. Grant, did you know that uh, they were also flying a jet over there at Reno? I, I was almost very embarrassed that I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I, I was kind of upset I wasn't able to get in for the meeting because I wanted to ask Tammy about that. Uh, they had been over for qualifying. Uh, I remember when chatting with uh, Mr. Pracy, um, had heard some of the stories that they'd been there, had gone through qualifying and were probably going to be at one of the next years happening. Mm. So, uh, yeah, no, it was uh, it was great uh, to have more than one of the Aussie flying over there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there was, uh, as far as I know, including then, it would have been three teams because I know Lockie Onslow was over there as well. But yep. uh, Tammy does talk a bit about uh, her role in that team and uh, really interesting stuff. And uh, she's a really, really big advocate for women's aviation here in Australia. And, uh, you know, it's good to see that, you know, Australia will be participating in such a positive way in this uh, Women of Aviation Week. So that'll be coming up a bit later in the show. But Grant, uh, enough talking about what's going on in the show. Let's get into the show. I reckon, mate. On with the show. Let's do it. Air Marshal Mark Binskin, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. It's great to be on. Mate, it's great to have you here. I've been following uh, following your various events around the place and I've uh, been meaning to come up and say hi, but today was the first opportunity. Great to have you here at Tamora and uh, to see you relaxing a bit. It is always good to be out at Tamora and, and uh, being an aviation buff, as you'd expect, being in Air Force and the Navy for so long, it's just great to get out here. There's no real that you're going to see this mix of aeroplanes anywhere in the, the world yeah. and uh, having the aviation crowd here, everyone's happy. It's like Disneyland, but with aeroplanes, it's yeah. better. It is. It's big kids having fun with it big is. toys. It is, and it's great. And business gets done here as well, but predominantly, it's uh, we're looking at just people out here because they really enjoy aviation. Yep. You mentioned the Air Force, Navy. Let's talk about what got you into aviation. How'd you start, sir? Air shows. My, uh, my dad used to take me to air shows. He's a bit of an aviation buff uh, as well. Mm-hmm. He used to take me to air shows. We used to do the Albatross air shows with the A4s and the, the trackers and all that. And we'd go to Richmond the days of the F4 Phantoms and, and the Mirages. And uh, it, it got me hooked. I was hooked at a, at a young age. And I was lucky enough to get in the, the Navy and fly in the fleet air arm, then switch to the Air Force. Okay. Been fantastic. So with the air arm, you went through and you flew A4s? I flew A4s for a couple of years. Uh, and then uh, I was on an exchange with the Air Force flying Mirages for a couple of years there. And that was when the uh, the fleet air arm fixed wing was disbanded with the, the carrier. I changed over to Air Force, fighter combat instructor course, lucky enough to be in the first cadre of uh, Hornets in the, the States and just had a brilliant career. Just haven't fantastic. flown a bad aeroplane. Actually, they're all good <laughs> and always great people to work with. 
So um, eventually they moved you out of the cockpit and onto the desk? Yeah, it has to happen. But it's interesting. You take what you learn in the cockpit and you employ it in a business sense in the, in the staff work as well. Yep. So uh, it, it is interesting what you can translate from the, that dynamic world uh, and the tactical world and your, and your thinking to be able to bring into the, the staff work. It was interesting um, chatting with Liddy. Um, he's yeah. going to be flying the F-18 and mm-hmm. he's done the FCI and where he's going and what mm-hmm. he'd like to be doing. And yeah, he's, he's seeing a, light, a role in the cockpit for a while longer. Yeah, and, and so he should too. Yeah. He's still got a, a few years. Uh, I, I mean, I was lucky. I, I spent 17 years in the cockpit before they dragged me out. And at the time I thought, oh, what am I going to do? But I actually appreciated the break. And then when you went back into the cockpit again, it made you appreciate the flying that much more. It was great. <laughs> yeah, always yeah. good to get back into it. Mm. So uh, when you came out, uh, where did you progress from from the Hornets? Uh, you, you went through and became in the, in the uh, Canberra and headquarters and so on, yeah? Yeah, I ended up in a, a capability development role in, uh, in Canberra and uh, was lucky enough to work for John Baker when he was the Chief of the Defence Force as his staff officer for, for a year and that gave me the idea that uh, actually I can do this uh, in the, the staff work and, and progress there. Went back and was Commanding Officer of 77 Squadron for two years. I was on the Wedgetail program as the Project Director for three years in the Defence Materiel. Then lucky to fly again as uh, Commander Air Combat Group. Did a, Lucky to do a tour in the Middle East in the Air and Space Operations Centre. Back a couple of staff jobs, Air Commander, Chief Air Force and Vice Chief now, so it's great. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So um, as, as Vice Chief of Defence Force, uh, what are your responsibilities and roles? Pretty much everything. It's quite broad. <laughs> uh, normally we're responsible for the bad stories, so I normally pick those up. But uh, no, I'm responsible for in my own right as uh, for education, the, the training side, the health side, logistics civil military uh, operations, capability development to, a, to an extent, uh, and capability coordination. So there's a lot in the vice yeah. chief role. Very, uh, very much uh, a, a full spread across defence. But like always, I've got specialists that work for me, and they, they are fantastic. They know their job, exa- and they know exactly what needs to be done. And they filter up the information for you to get a good view of it to make a decision. They do. And, yeah. and at the end of the day, those sorts of jobs, they're all about relationships. Go have a good relationship with the people that work with you. Make sure you're, you're loyal to them, and Yep. They will always be loyal to you and, uh, and let them get on with the, the specialty that they have. Yeah. Now, outside of the Defence Force, do you do any flying of your own? Oh, I love flying. I, I'm lucky enough at the moment to be an owner of a 01 bird dog. And I love it. It's funny, coming out of a Hornet that did 600 knots into a bird dog, that you're lucky to do 85 or 90 knots. It's quite, <laughs> and it's a tail dragger. It's quite interesting. Yeah. But I, I wanted to get something with a bit of history uh, behind it. This aircraft's got a bit of history. It flew in Vietnam with two US Army units. It's, although I can't prove, it's probably got some uh, North, Vietnam, North Vietnam time. It was in a unit that was sitting right up on the, the DMZ uh, at the time that they were uh, doing very good with close air support and going across uh, for spotting into into North Vietnam. Um, but And I've had been in contact with a couple of people who were in the units that it flew in. So I've got some good photographs of the original crew chief with it in Vietnam. Uh, it's great. great. It's a fantastic history and, and it's a fun little aeroplane to, to fly. Do you have it here today? It's here today. We're going to fly. I'm number three in the three ship of bird dogs that gets oh, airborne. Cool. Uh, but I take my hat off to the people that flew it in combat. You see a lot of aircraft out here that combat aeroplanes, 300, 400, 600 knots. To go into combat at a couple hundred feet at 85 knots uh, is very, very impressive. And I dip my hat to the guys that did it. 
Yeah, because it's like the other ones, gone and it's got to react pretty quick to shoot them down. But this thing, it's like, well, I'll take my time. Well, it's the old adage, never make someone angry unless you can run away quickly. So you (laughs) you, you can't run away quickly at 85 knots. Any plans to get any other aircraft or are you very happy with the Bird Dog? No, I'm happy with the Bird Dog at the moment. We're building a hangar uh, and my wife really enjoys it. She's got the back seat all set up for for her. Uh, She's turned into an air crew type of person she's got the ray-bans wears the hat looks in the mirror you know, like most uh, most air crew so uh, she uh, she loves it she yes. really enjoys uh, being a part of it she's here today helping out as well so fantastic mm. air marshal mark binskin thanks very much for coming on the show not a problem air vice marshal retired mark skidmore welcome to the show thank you very much it's good to be here mate it's a beautiful day melbourne's put on a spectacular weather it's a fantastic day isn't it yeah who knew it was supposed to be like windy right now it's almost box kite <laughs> flying weather almost almost now you're a gentleman who'd know all about that given that uh, you're the person who took this aircraft for its first flight i did i had a wonderful opportunity on the 11th september to take the box kite up for its maiden voyage and uh, how was that? I believe it was straight down the runway for you? It was. We did a pretty concentrated sort of lead-up approach, a test process to get a feeling for the aircraft. So we went through taxi, low-speed taxi test, high-speed taxi test, up to the stage of actually doing a short hop just to feel, get the feel of what she would descend like and then did the longer flight, which was about a minute. And uh, I believe the minute was covered about 800 metres or so? About a th- yeah, 800 or 1,000 metres. It was Excellent. close to that. So how would you find her? Um, I, I believe there wasn't time to do um, roll, but you did experiment with pitch? I did. I, well, the main thing was getting her, getting her airborne was the first thing, and then I had a tracking task of just going straight down the runway and not doing anything uh, bizarre and putting it, <laughs> putting it back down on the, on the runway at the end of it. And I was able to achieve that. So I, f- I think it was a very successful flight. <laughs> tick, tick, tick. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> as, uh, as we had when we chatted with Keith up at uh, Narrow Mine with the right replica, always plan your flight and stick to your plan. Exactly. Stick to the plan. So that was all we had to do. Uh, tracking task and just see what she felt like longitudinally and laterally in, in the straight and level sort of approach. And, and the general feeling is she flies, you can fly the aircraft, but she's... Um she gives the appearance of being unstable in just about most axes. So you're uh, continuously correcting her? Yeah, I wouldn't be letting go of the stick, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, not one that you can take a breather on, is it? No, no. <laughs> and is she twitchy in pitch? Uh, she seems very responsive in pitch, which is good. Uh, the initial just sort of getting airborne, when I got, I, I got to what I felt like was a, a takeoff speed and gave a reasonable pitch input in, and she pretty much leapt into the air at that stage, and then I was able to just reduce that pitch, pitch input, and she climbed up to about 15 to 20 feet or so and that was where I wanted to stay so I levelled off there and everything was in regards to pitch response she reacted as I expected I didn't feel like there was much of a lag in the system at all okay and is it is the elevator only at the rear or is it the front plane also an elevator uh, front and rear okay so you've actually got you got quite a few flying surfaces on the box kite so you've got the actual the forward elevator the rear elevator the wings themselves obviously um, and everything's flying so you're getting pitch pitch moments from a whole bunch of places <laughs> yeah so that that would make because it looks quite large and you think if there's only one at the rear it would, would be pretty laggy but yeah with both the front and rear that's yeah yeah the good thing about the front one is it actually gives you a nice good nice attitude indicator as well okay let's just see sort of what you're trying to pitch to yeah you can see a pitch attitude and you can yeah. see a roll attitude as well so you can maintain wings wings level oh of course because that's your uh, horizon yeah, artif- it's like an artificial horizon there you go. <laughs> except well, it stays with the aircraft <laughs> <laughs> well there's not many other uh, controls on the aircraft and, and instruments is there? Uh, we've got a few instruments mainly obviously engine well engine instruments because just to keep an eye on the Rotec 2800 we've got on there but um, yeah, airspeed and altimeter pretty much are the main things yep. not that I 
looked at those much because I was concentrating too much on flying than anything else. <laughs> so a bit of a bit of a thrill when you got it back down, shut it down, put it away. The thrill was flying. Yeah. Putting it back down on the ground was a bit sad, but uh, I, I had a huge smile on my face. I've, I've said before, a huge smile when I land. I've got a huge smile still. <laughs> a couple of months later, it was just a wonderful yeah. thing to be able to do. Awesome. And, and and in terms of the landing, it was just a gentle return. It wasn't a stall out or anything. No, no. It was uh, I deliberately went for a basically a wheel of landing, so I reduced power, kept a fairly level attitude until I felt the wheels had touched down and then power and then reduced power at that stage to idle okay. and she stopped within about two to three aircraft lengths at that stage. Well you've got a lot of drag on this beastie. Yeah. Well yeah there is she's she um she is quite a draggy sort of aircraft. Yeah but okay so first flight yay. Yes. What's next? Uh, what we're doing we're, we're preparing at the moment a test plan to look at exploring the envelope with the intention being to hopefully do something for the centenary military aviation but it, it, it's going to depend on weather conditions oh, yeah. and, and also where we get to in regards to test flying but uh, I would like to explore a bit further so we can see what we could do with the aircraft but it really comes down to Air Force's decision as to whether they want to continue flying or not yep well hopefully they do because it's beautiful to see uh, I've only seen it on YouTube I'd love to be here when it's flying next and hopefully that'll be at the uh, air show yeah, I I hope so too. <laughs> okay, Mark, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Air Vice Marshal Leo Davies, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. It's nice to be back at Point Cook. Yeah, it's, uh, I imagine you must have started here. I started here. I did indeed. Uh, 139 pilots course. So even uh, having a cup of tea this morning before festivities started, uh, it was walking back in the building and uh, memories came flooding back, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, they have a habit of doing that, don't they? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you started here on the, um, was it the CT4? CT4, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yep. And uh, from there progressed through, uh, I guess Mackey. That was, it was the Mackey. Yeah. Mackey then uh, crossed to Pierce and then from Mackey to F-111s up at Amberley. Okay, how long were you on the, on the F-111? Uh, I got just short of 2,500 hours F-111, so wow. that's my primary aircraft, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's a, a long haul with that. I mean, so you're a pilot? Yes, pilot, yep. yep. And, uh, so all our pilot training was done here at Point Cook at one point. Yep. No, I was just wondering if you'd uh, done the, the right-hand seat as well or anything like I that. I did, actually. I'm, I'm what uh, Air Force colloquially call a retread. <laughs> so uh, I actually started as a navigator on P3 Orions and then did pilot's course. Uh, yeah, so I, I've... Uh, seen both sides of that world wow yeah you have you have got yep. around uh, yeah the orion's good for those long haul missions absolutely <laughs> long long is one way to describe it <laughs> <laughs> yeah long and droning yep. and um, so after the f-111 uh was it to the um the the desk or did you uh, did you fly anything else between then no after the f-111 it was pretty much a uh, executive role in f-111 world i finished up as oc 82ing up at raf base amberley and then yeah uh, on to a uh, bigger and brighter things behind uh, what we term a mahogany bomber. So now you're um, second in charge of the Air yes, Force? Yes, Deputy Chief Air Force. Yep, okay. What kind of uh, tasks does that give you on a day-to-day basis? Day-to-day, my role really is to look after Air Force headquarters on behalf of the Chief. I also have uh, responsibility for people, for dollars, for policy ge- generation, and uh, largely and a part that we find uh, to be uh, vitally important is the relationship between uh, the government mm-hmm. and other groups and services. So I find uh, my role to be uh, making sure that Air Force's part is the right part in that little matrix. Yeah, slotting in with the other units of the Defence Force. Absolutely. And, yeah. yeah. Now, as you mentioned in your speech just before, uh, very, very major change going through the Defence Force with the air wings. Absolutely. Uh, we've already seen the C-17 come on. And, yes. Uh, the tanker is is almost but not quite entirely there with uh, it's it can do the drogues but not the boom not the boom just yet that's right it's very close so we've also got the super hornets have come online we have now coming up we've got the uh the jsf of course the f-35 yes. and before that uh, the c-27 uh, the, the growler 
Oh, of course, yeah. So we have the uh, F-18G, we have C-27 in the next couple of years. The first crews leave next year for the States for training, both uh, air crew and maintenance, and uh, they'll be in Australia in 2015. We have just last year, sorry, year before, declared uh, IOC for uh, Wedgetail for our AW and C. Uh, so as far as the Air Force is concerned, it's, it's really quite vibrant. We haven't seen anything like this since the 60s, have uh, we? Indeed. And, and that's, that's the nice piece for us now is we, we have a, a very modern fleet, mm-hmm. we have a very modern focus, and now as we start to uh, work out how to uh, implement those, uh, it's going to be a totally different fighting force. Oh, definitely. I, I imagine you must be very, very busy up there getting everything sorted out. Indeed. Largely the, uh, the work is done as far as getting the pieces, mm-hmm. but of course it's now uh, the, the, the tougher work is for... Uh, the boys and girls who are joining the Air Force today will be those folk who are operating these uh, aeroplanes and systems. And I might add, uh, the Army with ARH Tiger, uh, with the Navy replacing uh, their their maritime helicopters, uh, it's all very exciting for all three services. Plus you've also got trainers coming up at some point. Indeed. So we can't get our young boys and girls standing at the front door at recruiting saying... I want to fly an aeroplane that is uh, 25 or 30 years old. Uh, I, I think it's, I have a 16 year old son, so uh, <laughs> if it's not the latest game or the yes. most challenging, then, then there's an element missing. So I, I think what we're doing in, in both our pilot and our navigation training systems is providing them some uh, modern training environment for them to go to all these modern platforms. Yeah, mm. uh, it's definitely a lot of change. I mean, it's going to make it fun in 20 or 30 years, but uh, when they all sort of start coming up for a renewal. <laughs> Indeed, and I, I think uh, you asked about my job as deputy chief one of them is uh, and the other two deputy chiefs in their respective services are saying the same thing that is we've got to leave our leave the, the next generation a respectable uh, operation uh, and a decent legacy and and we, we do focus on that anything else you'd like to say while we're here I just think it's a magnificent opportunity for Australia to come and see what has happened over the last hundred years mm-hmm. and while we're operating magnificent equipment we've just spoken about that it started from very modest beginnings and it's only through uh, the involvement of uh, military folk, the support of the Australian people that we've got ourselves to this place. Uh, I would encourage everyone to come and, uh, and have a look at Point Cook in March and uh, I think they're in for a great show. Excellent. Thanks, Leo. Pleasure indeed. Plan your flight. Fly your plan. With Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breathe and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Ever dreamt of flying in a warbird? Why not strap yourself in for pure excitement and let a supercharged radial engine take you up to speeds of 200 knots? Dare to push the boundaries as you experience up to 6.5G, fully aerobatic or simply take in the spectacular scenery of Western Port Bay, French and Phillip Islands with 360-degree views. Come and join us at Adventure Wings in Turidan and take flight in our Nanchang CJ6A. Plane Crazy Down Under listeners get the 15-minute flight for only $250. That's a saving of $30. Call us on 0418 525 658 or visit our website adventurewings.com.au. Flying every weekend and other times by appointment. Adventure Wings. Leave the ordinary behind. 
Hi, I'm Dave Homewood from the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's own aviation podcast series, where we feature the stories of Kiwi pilots, warbird restorers, Air Force veterans, home builders, historians, authors, modelers, stories from aviation museums and associations, air show reports, and much, much more. The Wings Over New Zealand show loves to bring you the stories of Kiwis who've made their mark on aviation. So find the Wings Over New Zealand show online. Find more about it on the world-famous Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum and like us on Facebook. We also love to listen to Steve, Grant and the team at the Plane Crazy Down Under show. Hi, this is Leo Laporte of This Week in Tech and the Twit Network. You know, we don't do any aviation podcasts, thank goodness. I wouldn't want to compete with Steve in Australia's premier aviation podcast, Plane Crazy Down Under! Keith Webb, uh, you've been working on the Unsung Heroes project for the Tamora Aviation Museum. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Mate, uh, can you tell us a bit about the Unsung Heroes project? Well, it's a project that's been initiated by the museum. It's been running since about 2006. And the idea has been to interview as many veterans, particularly World War II guys, as possible, who fought for Australia or in the support of Australia. And so that involves a bit of research to find them, track them down, approach them, see if they're interested in talking? Yes, it becomes a, it's a, it's a word of mouth thing. So I'll find somebody, he'll know somebody else, or maybe four or five others. Uh, sometimes I meet them at air shows. Um, squadron reunions and so you take a recorder like I'm using here and um, and and work with it or do you do it to video as well now the the interviews are all video based so we have a studio here at the museum but I'll also go out to meet people in their homes that's sometimes a lot better because you can spend more time with them here the time's a little bit tight and uh, I generally take them through their training into whatever operational flying they did then sometimes if if the mood's kind of right uh, I'll I'll go back and probe a bit more with questions yeah. how do you how do you find the vets are to actually get them once you open them up they go or does it take a little while to get them to relax if you can speak to them first before you actually start the interview the most important thing i've found is that if they understand that you understand what they went through and you've got a bit of knowledge about the places they were the aircraft they flew then they're far more open to talk about it and you just ask one question sometimes and you know half an hour later of, of gold it's you, you've got it one of the guys after I uh, interviewed him towards the end he just said I'm telling you things I don't even know I remembered <laughs> that's great and, and sometimes if you've got family listening to it they'll say that they never they're telling tales they never heard that's right that quite often happens and each interview is put onto DVD just the whole unedited version for the family so we, we send those out to the veterans and uh, it's it's often quite a revelation to them I could imagine, because a lot of the vets, especially World War II and so on, don't like to talk about what they've done. That's right, yeah. And the families say, well, Dad, Dad never told us any of this stuff. And it, sadly, it's often after they've passed on that they know. So about how many of these interviews do you think you've done? We're up to around about the 400 mark now. Not just World War II. We've been doing Korean War, Vietnam, and even more recent conflicts. So you've got some of the guys from Desert Storm and so on? Yes, I have. Yeah, Matt Hall particularly. He was there on the opening confrontation flying with the Americans. Yeah, he tells a fascinating story of going in and out through that SAM zone and how that was both in his book and in his presentations. Yeah, it's just incredible. 
one of, one of the more more surprising aspects, uh, I've interviewed a lot of Navy pilots as well. It's not just Air Force, but Army pilots, Navy pilots. Talking to some of the guys in the Navy who flew helicopters in Vietnam, they flew with the Americans. They went through some of the most incredible fighting battles that, that you could ever imagine. That was the Taipan squadrons, they were the gunships and so on, and it was a mixed combined uh, Navy, Australian Navy and American... That's right, yeah, they, they had the, the gunships and the slicks. Yeah, that, there's a book called uh, In the Snake Pit, I think it is, and that's that captures uh, an American guy who flew with the Aussies. Yeah, one, one of the guys I interviewed, I just can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he reminded me a little bit of Yul Brynner, and he's the sort of guy you just would not mess with. <laughs> yeah, it ha- often happens, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and their memories are often, they're so much fresher, they're just so much more on the ball but then occasionally you can be really surprised by someone who is much much older for instance uh, recently interviewed a guy who was 98 who flew hurricanes in Burma and he shot down I think it was nine and a half victories he had three of them were just on one flight oh wow that's that's must have been an intense flight yeah it, it was yeah Burma's actually brought out some pretty interesting stories so uh, do you have a, a, a favorite one you've done uh, one of the favorites would be actually two two men they were identical twins they trained in Canada and they wound up on the same squadron together. One of them, they, they, one of them joined after the other. The first fellow wound up in a fight with some zeros and he wound up on the tail of a zero and he's about to press the, the firing button and he felt his aircraft being hit by another one he hadn't seen behind him, which overtook him. They were up a, a blind valley in the Imphal Valley and he said that the zero passed him and then did a stall turn. The technique was a stall turn to come round behind. He said it all happened very quickly. The guy did a stall turn in front of him. He a no deflection shot and he pushed his button to, to fire and nothing happened. Oh. And so he's, he knew that the end, of the, run, the end of the valley was coming up. He thought, well, I'm going to die here. I'm going to try and hit him with my wing. And he swung his wing down. He said as he went past him, he said this canopy was back. He said his goggles up on his head and they just looked at each other. <laughs> they locked eyes. He managed to get up over the hill and bailed out and it was quite a long story but he did get back to his squadron but he said it wasn't until a couple of days after and he was thinking about it that he realised the Japanese had done a stall turn at 150 feet so he was dead yeah he wouldn't be pulled out would he no no just ripping yarn some of these guys oh my had. God. but when his brother identical twin joined the squadron the guys there said I saw you shot down. I thought you were dead and didn't realise it was his <laughs> brother yeah that, that could play in your cards in, in some of the social experiences <laughs> yeah, that's right yeah so there's some fantastic stories oh, yeah. any, any that stick out as particularly difficult to prize the oyster open? Um, no, some of them will just say, no, I just, I can't talk about that. Uh, and one fellow I interviewed, he said, this this is the last interview I'll ever do. It's the last time I'm ever going to talk about this. It's, wow. He said, I won't even sleep tonight. Yeah. I had no idea. It just scratches the wound and reopens everything? That's right, oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. Anything else you'd like to say on the project? Yes, uh, well, the, the interviews are available here at the museum for visitors to have a look at. There's an Unsung Heroes display that's that's in the guardhouse, which is the main shop area, and uh, visitors are welcome to come and have a look. Is it accessible online as yet? Not yet, no. no. Any plans to do that? Uh, I'm not quite sure what the museum's planning. I'd love to see it online. Yeah, no, that would be great. It's, it's one of those archives that needs to be kept for future generations oh, and easily accessed. It will definitely be kept, yeah. yes. Excellent. Keith, thanks for coming on the show. No worries, thank you. Captain Jack Curtis, the legend of the DC-3 in Australia, welcome to uh, Playing Crazy Down Under. 
It's, uh, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Actually, we're at, we're at the Tomorrow Air Show, aren't That's we? That's the one, mate. Tomorrow, November the 2nd. That's yeah. it. The big day is tomorrow. The big day is tomorrow. Everyone's getting ready, and I'm racing around doing interviews before the uh, chaos really sets in. A good idea. <laughs> a good idea. Now, Jack, as I was just saying uh, earlier, the last time I saw you, uh, I was helping you out as a... Uh, I thought it was a real honour to be a co-pilot on a DC-3. We were taxiing around, and then I realised why I was there. It was because I had to man the wobble pump. That's the way, yes. That was the, the machine we had mostly had the wobble pumps <laughs> the later ones of course had the booster pump which which was much easier to, to, to use I must yeah. confess now uh, I met you when uh, you were uh, doing your conversion to the uh, Lockheed 10 Electra the restoration project of uh, Ansertes that's true that was done by an American from from memory American pilot came out I think to do that yeah, yeah am I correct I can't think yeah. of his name at the moment I can't remember his no, name either no. but yeah he came out and gave you a couple of flights and that's said right. oh yeah you know what you're doing <laughs> Yeah. That was a very happy time on that aeroplane. That was Laurie Ogle's uh, Lockheed 10A. 10A. That was the one. Yeah. And the registration was? Uniform Zulu Oscar. UZO, which was one of the original Ansett aeroplanes. Yep. That's right. And it was named Ansertes. Ansertes. Yeah. Uh, I think it's down at Wollongong in the museum, isn't it? It is. I've seen it several times. Uh, they was to fly again. I was down there oh, a, year, a couple of years back, but... They were going to fly, then they weren't, then they were anyway. It's still sitting, which is an absolute shame. Yeah, it's because it reminds me of this aeroplane over here, this Ryan, Ryan truck, yeah. with such a you know, beautiful polished surface. Yeah, I know all about that yeah, polished you, surface. You do? <laughs> I clean oh, that. Oh right. Well, you, you should take a bow. You should <laughs> I spent, take a I bow. I spent a lot of weekends out at the uh, uh, hangar cl- yeah. polishing that Lockheed. Do you know? Like, may I at this time ask you what's with Laurie Ogle? I haven't heard. I have no neither. idea. I, I haven't. Right, I, he's still alive, I know, but I yeah. haven't. I haven't heard from him. Oh, yes, beautiful project. Now, now, Jack, when did you start flying aircraft? Oh, right here where we're standing. Yeah. Right here where we're standing. That's why I'm here. This is why I'm in the publicity here. Uh, I went. To, I, I got. My, I didn't get my wings here, but I came here and trained yep. uh, in 19 early 1943. I did 60 hours on the Tiger Moth, and then went to Europe and quickly got my wings. And you're in Quinning on the Whirlways. From there, I went to uh, the UK, did the advanced flying unit at, um, in Turnhill in Shropshire. From there, I went to the Middle East, did an OTU out in, uh, at Fayette on the canal in Egypt, and then um, went to and I joined uh, a squad, a, an RAF squadron. Uh, but uh, strangely, it was um, it was staffed by entirely by uh, until two Australians got there by South Africans that was 250 squadron they called it the sedan squadron because it had a very strong South South African and what were were you flying? uh, Kenny Horse and Mustangs and from there uh, when the war finished and I got there very very late right towards the end of the war and then uh, uh, we were flying and training on the Mustangs of course to come back to the Pacific and for the Japanese thing but by the time uh, by the time we are on the boat and coming home, and they dropped the bomb, and that was the finish of World War II, which is just as well. Yeah. Otherwise, I mightn't be talking to you here there. Pretty high <laughs> attrition rates. <laughs> so uh, after the war and after after coming back, what, what did they have you on? Uh, after the war, well, I didn't fly. I didn't fly in the in the, uh, in the air force uh, uh, after I got back from uh, from uh, the Middle East. Um, I had a two or three year, well, a couple of years break. I did a bit of flying with the Aero Club, but then I joined the uh, the famous Trans Australia Airlines, TAA, and 
flew there for 32, 33 years. And that was the, where you got your love affair with the DC-3 began? Exactly, that's where it began. I flew whatever aeroplanes the TA had at the time, finished on the, on the Boeing 737. And um, then, as, I, as you've just said to me, I had this second love affair with the DC-3 and uh, the Rebel Air, I think, were the people I yep. first were Rebel Air. And from there I went to, uh, became chief pilot for Dakota Down Under. Now we had four, actually we had five aeroplanes, only four flew, but I'm afraid uh, the owner was uh, a car a car man and really you, you, can't, you can't operate a, a, a commercial operation like you run a car yard. We had a few problems, however, uh, he did well, he, he put a lot of money into it, but uh, about a year or two ago it um, unfortunately fell over. Those are the DC-3s parked north of Sydney, I believe? Yes, yes. Yeah. There were a lot of rules. We were running it as a fully commercial operation. In other words, if you had a Dakota National Air ticket in your hand and you walked up the stairs handed it to HD, you deserved the same amount of, of pilot training and engineering as if that ticket said Qantas. Yep. And that's the way I ran it. Well, that's what you need to do to give everyone the safety and the Absolutely. same with your maintenance and everything, Absolutely. especially on an old so, DC-3. But look, it was a, it was a, I think flying in general aviation was um, was about as, uh, as pleasant out of the three careers I had. That is, I had the career in, in the Air Force, the career in, in TAA and Qantas, and then um, general aviation. General aviation by far was... Uh, was uh, the uh, was the happiest I'd say, or the most the most enjoyable and the most rewarding. Even though the pay wasn't that good, but <laughs> that's not the point. No, it's, it's some, and GA. You're not really in it for the money, yeah. are you? Uh, that's true. I'll give you a little bit of a, a bit of a funny, if you like. Um, yeah. uh, all the for some reason or other, I'd walk gone over back to the terminal building. Twenty eight passengers are sitting on you. Know, you walk up the slope of the aeroplane, and uh, I sat in my seat. I could hear the the hosting, the flight attendant giving the PA and she said, morning ladies and gentlemen, she said, I am so-and-so. And she said, um, your captain today is Jack Curtis. He's the only pilot in Australia today flying the DC-3 that's older than the aeroplane itself. <laughs> she got you with that one. She sure did. She sure did. So, uh, so there we are. So when Dakota National Airways closed and those aircraft were parked uh, about, up? Uh, about, uh, I flew one of them through here a couple of months ago. And that's the last one. It was been sitting in Melbourne, it's Sierra Rovalina, SBL. It had been sitting down there weighing maintenance, but uh, we've, I flew it up here and then took it to Bathurst and it's now at Molong with the rest of the fleet, five or six of them there now, most of them with their wings off. Yeah. So I'm afraid it's, uh, the old DC-3s are almost a thing of the past. Uh, Haas have got there too. Yep. I did the training for that, or did the retraining for the uh, for the Qantas flakes that are currently flying them, and um, and that well that's yeah, that's about it. There's those two. There's a couple in Melbourne still flying. Yes, uh, yes there are two in Melbourne yep. still flying. Plus the Horden. There's Horden and there's well, a there's a, the AES was Horden yeah. there because uh, I flew that for many many years in TAA. Yeah, exactly. So uh, what are you doing for yourselves now? You just you just said before that. You're coming up on your 89th birthday. 89th birthday. And still going strong. Well, I know about still going strong. It's a, the old legs are not they're not made for dancing anymore. <laughs> I can tell you. I'm enjoying. I, you know, I I come down here quite a bit. In fact, we used to bring the DC3 down here for every, or sometimes two of them. We had down here at the same day, on the Saturdays and Sundays. And uh, but uh, no, I, I've still got a license. I've still got a license. 
but uh, I, uh, I'll fly. I'll, I'll fly as a passenger or fly as a second pilot yep. with somebody. But that's about the extent of my aviation. Yeah. Okay. All right. How Jack, does that sound? That, do that was fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on the show. <laughs> okay. Great to All see right, you again, okay. mate. Okay. So good. Thanks, mate. Dick Sims, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Oh, thanks very much. That's very nice of you to uh, we have a little chat. Now, Dick, I understand you're flying Orion. Is that an Orion STM? Yes, it is. It's Orion STM with a Manasco uh, engine in it. And it's here right now at this air show and it's just been flying. Yeah. And it is by far the prettiest and the most beautiful. And it's nearly supersonic too. Oh, it's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> uh, once we redefine the laws of supersonic, but that, that silver finish makes it look like it should be, doesn't it? Oh, look, it's quite a unique story how I've, I got it and that sort of stuff. But to me, it epitomises the absolute beauty of simplicity of aeronautic design in the 1930s in America. Yep. It's a most beautiful example of that era of aerodynamics. Oh, it was, and it was in the hangar yesterday as I was, I was here all day yesterday getting interviews and talking to people. Yes. I just kept looking across and drawing it. They've polished it so well. Oh, yeah, the polish beautiful. is fantastic. I mean, that aeroplane took over from the bags and the wires of a tiger moth. Yep. You know, that was the American version of what succeeded a tiger moth. Yeah. And it's, it's still, to me, the most classically beautiful 1930s dynamics of aerodynamics that you see. Well, Dick, what got you into flying? When I was a boy, I was, uh, you know, I went to Parramatta High School, which was a, you know, a very good high school. And I got a Commonwealth scholarship to university. Everyone could get them. If you weren't an absolute moron, you could get a Commonwealth scholarship. And I'd worked at, in the last year of high school as a copy boy at Truth and Sportsman in the corner of Quebec and Hull Street in Sydney at weekends because uh, that way as you into journalism which I was going to be a reporter you got a job as a copy boy and then when an opportunity arose they offered you a cadet journalist job yep. but in the meantime I was earning enough money to learn to fly at Bankstown Aero Club it was 28 shillings an hour and I, over a year or 18 months I got my private flying licence then I got to university The then government opened up, or had opened up, the auxiliary squadrons. And the, the, like the, the British universities had all these auxiliary squadrons before the Battle of Britain, and they had a lot of good pilots out of there to go in the Battle of Britain. So I had my private licence and I applied for the 22 squadron, which was the city auxiliary squadron of Sydney. And there were 600 applicants, they interviewed 60, and for some reason I was one of them. No, that was just pure luck. Well done. Except I had a lot of coaching from my psychology professor. <laughs> I loaded the odds a bit in my <laughs> Nice move. <laughs> yeah. And so they then, I got into that squadron and they paid you five pounds a day with a uniform and accommodation to come and fly the Wirral Waves, get your wings and then fly the Mustangs. So that's how I got into big time flying. Yeah. Okay. And from the, so you flew the Mustang? Yes, I did. I did quite a few hundred hours in Mustangs. I was there for six or seven years. Yeah. And because they uh, they didn't have the roulettes in those days, they hadn't started to develop air show flying. And if anyone in the Air Force was keen on aerobatics, which I was, and developed a bit of skills at it, they could do the air shows. So I, I was more at Richmond in, and, and Schofields flying aeroplanes than I was at university. And so I, I did graduate eventually, but it wasn't that brilliantly. So flying the Mustangs became, you know, a, a very supreme pleasure. 
and I did a lot of air show flying for them there. After the Mustang, you're still with the with the RAF? Uh, yes, they brought around the, uh, the vampires, so uh, very nice of them. We then did the same thing through vampires as we had done with Mustangs, and we kept the Mustangs as well because they were great fun. And then after we'd done the vampires thoroughly, they brought around the uh, meteors, so we then did the same thing with meteors. So I was terribly lucky. I went from piston engines through turbo jets. In that case, I was the first cadet to fly a turboprop aeroplane in the Air Force. And then we didn't have radio aids to navigation. And my navigation was pretty good, so I led the squadron to Darwin. And then I was the first guy to land, and I was a cadet still, I was the first guy to land a jet aeroplane in Darwin. Wow. There's not much of a record, really, is it? (laughs) No, it's a pretty good record at all, especially as a cadet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Mind you, I was the oldest cadet in the Air Force. They didn't think I was promotable, really. (laughs) So uh, did, you, did you ever wind up getting uh, deployed for combat or anything like that? N- not really, no. I, I, was, I was to do the OTU on Meteors, but then the war finished up there. And uh, before I got there, it was all, and it all wound down fairly quickly then. But I didn't, you know, I would have quite readily gone, but uh, the war finished anyway. So you flew the Meteors for quite a while. and Yeah, I did. After I, that? And then after that, when... The idea was that with the auxiliary squadrons, they brought in cadets, you know, say six at a time and trained them. Well, as it happened, the six that I got in with, uh, there was only myself and another guy were actually selected. It was a good opportunity for all the wealthy families that had sons that wanted to fly to use whatever political hooks they had to get them in. And so four of the six got scrubbed. In fact, five of them did. I was the only one that finally graduated onto Mustangs. And then they brought a few more in, and uh, I think I had the best of it because I was there for a long while. Yeah. So did you fly anything else after the meteors? Well, I didn't didn't fly the Sabres. Had I gone permanently into the Air Force, I would have done the Sabres next and gone to Butterworth. But uh, I went to uh, I went overseas, you know, and uh, I had I was, I was then I must have been in my late twenties, and I uh, I went overseas for two or three years, and by one way or another I I joined the American Air Force. I didn't join the American Air Force. I was employed as a civilian employee for the American Air Force, and I spent a few years there. What were you doing there? Well, I wasn't permitted to fly. I would have had to go to America and get American nationality. But I did get plenty of gas flying, you know, but I, I was in intelligence with them, and that was quite fun too. Mind you, it was the height of the Cold War. Oh, wow. And, and everyone, you know, the Americans were, you know, quite rigid about it. They, they had surveillance of anything incoming, you know, the squadrons would scramble, and then they might get a recall. Unfortunately, uh, you know, it was quite, scrambling was moderately often, two or three times a year. And then they get a recall. But if they hadn't got a recall, then you know the, the whole off. world would have been off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But luckily, it never did. Times. Yeah. But then when I came back to Australia, I had the I was asked to join Victor to do the production test flying and the air show flying, because the guy Randy Green, who'd been a, an Empire test pilot from RAF days, and I flew with him quite a bit, knew I did air show flying. And then I was just home for a visit when I met him at Bankstown and he asked me to fly the aeroplane, which I didn't. And they offered me a job to do the airshow flying and uh, the production test flying. So that's, I then, I was going back to Germany, but uh, I, that changed my life. I stayed in Australia then. Did you do the airlines at any point? No, I didn't. I didn't fly airlines. I did some charter flying, but not much. That was, I, I then became 
the CEO of Beechcraft Australia. I was the founding chief of Beechcraft Australia. Hooker to Havilland recruited me to, uh, uh, well before that I'd done Victor, you know, I did the test flight for Victor and all that. And I'd sold a lot of Victors, which uh, 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 to have them very impressed with. Yeah. So they asked me to come and start up the Beach franchise, oh, which I did, and for about nine or ten years I was the CEO of Beechcraft Australia. Yeah. We, we got them going very well. Well, a beautiful aircraft is the Victor. I've flown in a couple of them. I love the, I love flying the, the Victor Air Tourer. Look, they are lovely aeroplanes yeah. to fly, and you can aerobat them, yes. you know, very nicely when you get a bit of practice in yeah. it. Well, very good about energy management. Yes, it is. That. Yes, yeah. yes. They, and they are, I mean, for the cost of them and what you could do with them. You had two people you could go, you know, fly around Australia very easily, they had long range, plenty of fuel, and they were aerobatic as well. And they still have the Victor Air Tour Association, the owners of the aeroplanes now are doing them up, so they're much better than when we put them out of the factory. Well, I mean, and look at the derivative, the CT4 yes, that yeah, we've got yeah. out here. Yes, yeah. so. Well, I actually did the, the, the display flying for the Air Force, which sold, I became sales manager of Victor, and I actually sold them. It wasn't really my efforts, I just showed them the aeroplane. Yeah. There was a big wheels above that that decided they'd buy the, the Victor. Yeah. But that's why they're here today. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah oh, yeah. well done. That was. Yeah, yeah. And the, also, the four-seater came out. We only did the test flying on it when the Victor board you know, sold the whole operation to, uh, to New Zealand, and that was the end of it here. So then uh, you're working with Hawker Pacific, so that was Hawker, Hawker Beechcraft. Here yes, it was. Yeah. Is that what became Hawker Pacific? Uh, yes, it did. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, because I, was, I couldn't sell pipers and cessnas in New Guinea, the guys that ran that, Dennis Buchanan, who was a, a piper man, I knew him well, he said, oh, Dick, I'll buy Beechcraft beach next, you know. I said, no, that's what I've heard that before. So when he had an argument with his chief pilot, we started another airline up there <laughs> called Mac Air Charters. Oh, nice. And we had 10 locals. The Havilland put in 10 grand and they put in 10 grand and then I sold them a couple of barons and about four or five bonanzas. It was very successful all round. Yeah. Then we did the same thing in New Guinea and we actually started Air Pacific. Oh, no way. Yeah, and then they swapped names later because the little local airline up there had a, a local name and so I dreamed up Air Pacific for us and then Hawker Siddeley later swapped the names uh, when they bought a Hawker Siddeley, a couple yeah. of Hawker Siddeley you know, airline aircraft. Oh wow, because yeah, well Air Pacific's still going and now part of... Uh, yes it is, and yeah, I believe it's BG going Airways. Yeah, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, going great guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been following that one for a while. They used to be referred to as the flying fruit tingle with the bands around the fuselage, but yeah, they're looking pretty good. Oh, well, I mean, it was all exciting times. Oh, yeah. And now I'm 83, and they've just taken my licence after 63 years Ah. until I get a pacemaker. And uh, so I'm in the decision stage of whether I'm going to take Wolfram as well, which I don't like the idea, but I'll eventually do it. So they said they will give me my licence back if I do that. But uh, Jack's still got his at 89, so... Yes, and do you know what? They've just given him his... uh, You've got his, his commercial license back, yep. and he's got a private, a class suit for four years. Yeah. So he's up to 93. He should be. Well, <laughs> yeah, although he does say he just wants to be the uh, number two pilot. He doesn't want to be PIC. Yeah, he's a great man, Jack. Yeah. He's a very early starter, you know, and he's a very late finisher. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, he's an energetic man. I remember working with him on the DC-3s and on the Electra. And yes, yeah. A lot yeah. of fun. Well, the strange thing about him, I don't want to turn it into a Jack interview, but in the airlines, he was bored to death. 
and they used to say call him the seagull because they had to throw a stone at him to get him to fly. And when he got into GA, you couldn't keep him out of here. Well, that's what he said. He said it was the best time of his life was the GA. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So speaking of GA, you've got the Ryan. I understand there was a little bit of adventure picking up that Ryan. Yes, look, I sold it to David for here, yeah. you know, on the condition I can come fly it any time, which I did for quite a while, but when I lost my licence, I can't obviously fly it anymore. But I, the, the, the Ryan was uh, in a woolshed out at Cobar, and the guy that owned it called uh, Tullow, and known as Chuck Tullow, he hadn't, he, he hadn't had his licence very long, but he went to town and got on the... Well, I better be careful about saying this. But anyway, he wasn't completely confident. <laughs> he gave a low-flying display and hit the fence. <laughs> so that turned it up. And uh, it had been in the woolshed for 10 years. And I went out to the woolshed when I went up to do an air show at Wagga. And I, sorry, at Coba. And uh, talked to the farmer and he said, look, I don't own it. A bloke called Chuck Tullow owns it. He left it here when I bought the farm and he's never been back. So I went down to Sydney and I was asking around and someone had seen this Chuck Tallow and he was working at the glassworks. So I went to the glassworks and they said, call us in a few days. And they gave me a dress in Bondi where he lived. <laughs> so I went to the Bondi address and uh, the lady said, well, look, he used to live here, but he doesn't live here anymore. And I was about to but where does he live? I don't know. I've got no idea. And I was about to, well, that's a dead end. And she said, but if you want to see him, he said, you'll find him in the front bar of the hotel there. <laughs> so I found him and we did had a bit of a discussion and I paid him a cheque and bought the aeroplane from nice. him. Nice. Because that would have been the same batch and Noel Cruz got one and we've just been hearing. Yes, I think Noel Cruz is, this was the Ryan here as serial number 474. Yep. I think Noel Cruz's was about... 20 or something earlier than that. Yeah, his, his was part of a batch that had been up, up north and had a cyclone come through and drop a, a, a hangar or something. Yeah. I think it might have been, but mine was one of the last batches yeah. and uh, it wasn't even out of the crate in, uh, some, in, in Java or Sumatra, wherever it was, yeah. until they shipped it down here and then they kept it in the crate. And during the war, I don't know whether they assembled it or not, but the war records show it was just hunted around from hangar to hangar, and I don't believe it flew much. Then the Newcastle Aero Club bought it from Brown and Jura, who bought it at auction, and they did it up. And when I did it up, with Air Ag did it up for me, it had a, a 212 hours oh, wow. since That's new. Great. So, and a, and I'd, I'd got from the owner, I'd bought a spare Manasco engine. Too. Yeah, so well, that's, a, that's a good find. Yes, it was. It was very good. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a, it's been a very great, fun life. And, but I, I, I gave it up as a profession because when my boys started coming along in the aeroplane business the one penalty is you're never home yeah you know you're here here there and when we i, I married and we had a month's honeymoon three two weeks up at surface and two weeks skiing in our ski lodge from university day then i came back i wasn't home for 28 nights and when i came back and did he come home my wife had gone she had gone back to live with her girlfriends at a double bay <laughs> so i had to go and recall her <laughs> Yeah, I'm not waiting around for you, mate, she says. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. I sometimes wonder whether that was a wise idea or not. I hope my wife's not listening. <laughs> well, Dick, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking some time to tell us all about your aviation. Well, look, that's very good, and I hope I haven't bored you too oh, much. It's been fascinating, mate. We could probably go on longer, but you've got to go and uh, enjoy yeah. the show. I'll go and find my mate Jack and see what he's doing yeah. now. What, what lies he's telling. <laughs> <laughs>
RAAF officer flying this Iroquois helicopter is pilot officer Mac Michael Haxel of Manly, New South Wales. Today he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for courage, flying skill and determination in the face of the enemy in Vietnam. Pilot officer Haxel is now back at his home base in Canberra and we are going to bring him to the microphone to talk to you. Here's a young man just recently returned from Vietnam. Good afternoon to you. How are you know? No, very well. Pilot officer Haxel, while you were in Vietnam, you took part in some rather hazardous operations with other members of your squadron. Um, could you um, tell us something about these operations? Oh, yes, sir. Mainly uh, most hazardous ones, I think, the uh, dust-off, uh, which are a Kazav Kazavaks pulling wounded chaps out. I see. Um, the other, some of the other missions are fairly routine and resupply of the uh, troops in the field, water, ammunition and food, just normal sort of resupplies. I see. Uh, were most of these operations with Americans and Australians or Australians only? With both Americans and Australians, but mainly with the Australians. I see. Uh, do you recall any particular operations during um, your tour? Uh, I recall one very well, as a matter of fact. Uh, took a few bullet holes. <laughs> I see. <laughs> uh, well, uh, this is sort of brings up the uh, question of uh, the month of August, which I believe was an unusually active one for you. Um, could you tell us something about that? Uh, yes, it was fairly active all over the area. I think uh, the VC were very active right throughout the Uktui province yeah. at the time, and uh, everybody was having trouble, not only me. <laughs> this was the occasion in which you took the bullet holes, wasn't it? Yes, that was it. At, uh, around about the August time, uh, everybody had troubles, not only me, the Army, the Air Force, uh, the whole squadron. <laughs> Were there a couple of bullet holes uh, in this incident at all, Mike? Oh, yes, uh, I got a, I took a few, and uh, a few other fellas took a few on the odd, odd occasion. I see. Thank you very, very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope you have a very pleasant stay back in Canberra. Mick Haxel, great to have you here on Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you going at the end of a long day? Well, uh, well, a little bit tired and weary, but there's that satisfied sort of tiredness that you get after uh, yeah. involved with aviation matters or, you know, something that's been challenging, but, you know, you've you got through and accomplished it pretty well. Now, you, you're here as a volunteer with the Tomorrow Aviation Museum. Yes. Uh, what roles do you take? I, I, I probably primarily now uh, just uh, get involved with the uh, commentary side of it, but I, I, I did do some flying here uh, previously a while back. Okay. What uh, aircraft were you flying? Uh, the Cessna A2. Oh, nice. Yeah, a bit of fun. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of took took me back a few years to uh, Vietnam days, you know, with a lot of those air, that sort of aircraft were uh, in Vietnam. Yeah. Now you are a retired group captain, so uh, you've gone through the Air Force. What yeah. got you into the Air Force? Well, I've been. I think I was like a lot of young teenagers of that era, not quite sure what I wanted to do. I did know I, I wanted to be involved with aircraft, but I, at that stage I really didn't know about that I, I wanted to, to actually fly them. And uh, my father was always a great one, of, you must get a trade son. And uh, I applied for uh, three streams of aircraft uh, engineering trades. Uh, one was with Qantas, one was with the Navy and one was with the Air Force. The Air Force came back first. So I went down that stream and trained at Wagga and then was, uh, you know, did the apprenticeship and 
went and worked on aircraft. But uh, during this sort of period, you know, uh, as you get a bit more mature and uh, I sort of realise this latent sort of desire to fly. I had used to make model aircraft and that sort of thing as a kid. But I mean, we never had any money to go and do flying and that sort of thing. But it was, I used to go with flyers as I could in the Air Force in the sense of on test flights and yep. things like that. But I was always pestering people to take me on a test flight. <laughs> and uh, quite often they did. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I got had a pretty good engineering understanding of aviation and aircraft, I think, and that sort of thing. So I just went from there and then I went off and uh, when I was uh, still a, a technician, uh, when I was at Williamtown actually, I went off and did a private license uh, up to Royal Newcastle Aero Club. So out at, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I. Uh, Sometimes you, know. you hear people going from engineering to to remuster as a pilot. Yes, yeah. yes. I, I do realise that, and uh, you know, now, but uh, in that in that time period, I was applying for pilot's course. Uh, yeah, I believe pilot's course, but. Uh, I did like flying. I thought, well, I'm going to spend some money, you know. And I mean, you know, it was sort of uh, about three things you could spend on: grog, chasing girls, and aviation. I probably cut back on the first two and, uh, <laughs> and spent it on, that, on the aviation side. Yeah. But I think that relates with a lot of people. Yeah, yeah resonates with yeah. many. Oh, very many of us. Uh, yeah. But uh, yes, yeah, so I went on. Eventually, I uh, got accepted for an Air Force pilot's course. Off I went, yeah, you know, down that stream. And uh, I must admit, I was uh, very. Uh, firm about uh, that I was didn't really want to go back to the hangar floor so I you know I did I had to work pretty hard it was it was hard going some people found it probably not quite so challenging I found it uh, particularly academically I found it also flying the aircraft not so much I actually sort of settled into that reasonably well the military style of flying I mean I had to while the private flying that I had done and I had about 150 hours private flying you know, when I got problem. there yeah so that did help I think particularly in the initial stages but once you got on the more advanced some of the advanced the formation flying and, oh, yeah. and uh, some of the low level formation instrument flying and that sort of thing there was really nothing much there I guess yeah. except it was a some aviation background and from there uh, when I graduated from pilot school so I went to helicopters and at that stage in the Air Force helicopters were uh, fairly much in their infancy in the sense of uh, the Iroquois being in service a few years but okay. so soon thereafter I was off to Vietnam because uh, you know, we, were, we were just ramping up our involvement in Vietnam yep. so off I went to fly Hueys in Vietnam which uh, for a young relatively young guy of about 23 you know uh, pretty minimal sort of experience uh, total aviation wise but you know, it, it's, pe- it's people always. I've always found it. You know, the young people respond pretty well. These sort of things. <laughs> yeah. You, you think you're bulletproof and off you go. Uh, well, you, there's a bit of that, of course, yeah. uh, and uh, you just get on and do things. Yeah. And uh, that, that's how it, it is, I think. <laughs> you know, each generation does that. Yeah. Now, uh, so uh, yeah, it went off that, and then uh, yeah, when I came back, I the instructor's course, and then went back instructing on helicopters because the pipeline and the involvement in helicopters in Vietnam had ramped up really and it was a big training pipeline so I uh, did a lot of instructing and uh, that sort of thing but but on on through the Air Force system uh, helicopters uh, of various sorts mainly Hueys and later Squirrels interspersed by various things uh, a couple of years at uh, two FTS Pierce on Mackies where I was a flight commander for at least part of the time uh, that was that was good. That was interesting. You yeah. know, mixing with a lot of people from lots of different backgrounds around the Air Force, and well, uh, that would have been a conversion course on the, onto jets on the Mackie, yeah. which I hadn't. I had never flown the Mackie at that yeah. stage. Was on pilot course. It had been the aircraft types windshield vampire. Yeah, but that that was all right. The Mackie was a, a good training platform actually, and uh, so uh, I enjoyed that time. And then I uh, went on from there to uh, 34 Squadron, it's the VIP Squadron, for a couple okay. of years. Interesting, and then. Uh, Usually interspersed staff college courses and 
yeah. uh, staff positions. Yeah. So I did. Uh, I went back at the helicopter world later on for uh, uh, at Fire Squadron as uh, you know an executive officer, and then later on as a commanding officer. Okay. And then uh, that was the that was really the end of my flying career okay. in the Air Force. Okay. You know, and then eventually I uh, after a few more years uh, up in ground jobs and getting promoted and silly things like that. Uh, I got approached to it. I joined one join what was then CAA, and I, a guy I knew who uh, he'd been in the Air Force many years before, and he uh, they were after people and convinced me to apply and that sort of thing, and it went on from there. And finally, I had to make a decision then to you know, after 32 years in the Air Force, which so essentially yeah, all my formative years would be yeah, in the Air Force yeah. as a young guy from 15, 16 years of age through that those formative sort of years. So it, it was a big a bit of thing, but you know I I had through this period in when I was flying in the Air Force, I had got my my civilian license as a commercial yeah. fixed wing, rotary wings. Yeah, I mean, I, you got certain credits, but I made sure I did the, okay. the exams and the flight yep. tests and got uh, civil instructor ratings and yep. that sort of thing. And I used to do a bit of that on the side oh, cool. and a bit of charter work from time to time. So I had a, a feel, at least a feel, for the civilian world at, at the general aviation sort of level. I think uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't any sort of big surprises to me. And but anyhow, I made the decision and left and the Air Force and went into uh, CAA come CASA. Yep. And uh, so that's you were there 17 for the years. Transition of the name and yes, yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. And, uh, oh, you know, that, I mean, it had its, had its moments, there's no doubt about it, through that. <laughs> those, like, like most organisations, yeah. has. I look back, I don't know, I got to fly uh, lots of different sorts of aircraft. I probably would not have got mm. a chance, you know, range small smaller helicopters, heavy helicopters. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, smaller fixed wing GA. They were, and like multi-engine and some of the he- bit of heavy metal I got involved with later on and uh, some of the uh, uh, ICAO work with ICAO on the various uh, study groups and that. That, w- that was very interesting. I found yeah. that extremely interesting with people from around the world, yeah, yeah. Around the world and how ICAO operated. And, uh, yeah, it'd be fascinating. Uh, uh, it is quite fascinating. It can be a bit frustrating at times. <laughs> some of the things move slowly, but uh, after all, it is a UN organisation. But nonetheless, it, it's... Uh, uh, it was extremely interesting and some really good people mm-hmm. from around the world you mix with in aviation. Approaching things different ways, but all really working for the same thing, the efficiency and safety and that sort of stuff. And then uh, eventually uh, yeah, came time to depart CASA and uh, I uh, became an ATO, rotary wing, and uh, so I still do a bit of that from time to time. Fantastic. A few flight tests and uh, I have done a bit of fixed wing flying, not quite as much as it's the rotary wing side, and uh, in fact, I go and go and get back into it and renew my uh, fixed wing instructor rating. Then and, you can uh, do testing uh, for fixed wing and rotary, I'll and perhaps do the odd bit of flying there. Yeah. Uh, but as well as that, I'm still involved on other things. You know, I do some a bit of consultancy, come auditing for a, uh, a company. It's a it's a marvellous outfit actually, and I'll mention its name. It's Flight Safety Proprietary Limited. Yeah, it's an extremely uh, professional organisation, yeah. and I like the way the audits are done. And they are very much uh, more safety-related rather than compliance-related, as the, ca- yeah, the regulator does. Yeah. It's, 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 there is a compliance data in these audits, but uh, and I, I found it uh, really interesting with all you know, small GA outfits, flying schools, big charter, you know, uh, corporate, and up, yep. up into the uh, some of the uh, regional airline type okay. operations. Quite and, diverse. Uh, yeah, and uh, most of the in the the main, the, most of the operators are very quite happy to have the orders done and they actually are uh, quite happy to uh, you know, see where this yeah. they can make improvements to their organisation yeah, the right I think that's a really good mature sort of approach it is a general sense in aviation, that's how 
most people seem to take yeah. you know and I uh, uh, that's really hard thing I find so I've, I've still hopefully putting a bit into aviation no that's fantastic uh, well, and yeah. I come to Tamora yeah. got involved with it about 10 years ago I've always done a bit of commentary work and that sort of thing you did have the opportunity to fly the O display the O2 yeah. for a number of years and uh, still like coming and being involved with the place from time to time I can understand that as a it's a great place to be. I've really enjoyed it. the couple of days I've been here. Yes, uh, well, was a big, big day today, of oh, course, yeah. as you know. Huge. Now I understand. Uh, were you awarded the DFC? Yeah, I was. Yeah, the yeah. Distinguished the... Flying Cross. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. Now, uh, what were the circumstances? You, you've for... been talking to Keith, I think. Uh, I think it was Kenny who mentioned. <laughs> oh, that. Kenny was it? Okay. <laughs> he yeah, somebody drop it. I think. No, I don't make a big thing of it, but I don't yeah. try to hide it or anything like that. And I'm sort of quite honoured that I got it. I, yeah. I, you know, I certainly did some things. I, I, other people did similar things, but you know, I was fortunate and honoured, lucky enough that you know they pinned one on my chest at some stage. You know, was that during Vietnam or? Oh well, no. I mean, the the citations of that were written, uh, or the recommendations, sorry, for were written. Well, it's in Vietnam, of course, but I mean, I was back from Vietnam by the time it all worked its way through oh, yeah. the system. The paperwork the, the, that goes through a process. Uh, in uh, in the defence force, uh, you know, yeah. honours and awards system, and uh, there's a, there's a right proper process, and so you know it was uh, well, it wasn't a, it was only a matter of a couple of months after I came home, I, you know, had a, well in that, those days I was single and I lived, my parents lived in Sydney, so it was the government house, you know, the governor of New South Wales at the nice. time. So uh, that's a that's a pretty normal sort of procedure, of course, for these sort of things. Yeah. Are you able to say what it was the situation that? got you nominated for it or well the, the citations uh, that were on on the citation and the recommendations were specifically around more around a couple of uh, incidents I, mean, I think the citation said for specific, specific two or three incidents but also for general you know, flying through that operational time but they're, they're primarily around these uh, there were special uh, there were special forces okay the SAS guys yeah. and the insertions and extractions of these guys, dicey uh, stuff, which could let's uh, say they uh, was always a fairly challenging and uh, and could be certainly. Uh, I think most people, you know, uh, approached it with a bit of trepidation at times because depending on the intelligence you were getting, and that wasn't necessarily as good as good as it could be sometimes. So we just managed and uh, we insert these guys right in amongst some uh, fairly uh, North Vietnamese forces as a turn in both occasions. See different situations how we got them out and that sort of thing. I won't no. go into that in detail, but uh, yeah. yeah, they could be quite challenging. Uh, but uh, you know, the squadron as a whole used to we used to do this and do it pretty well and never left anyone behind. And uh, certainly some exciting times, shall we say? <laughs> no, I can appreciate where you're coming from, and uh, yeah. it sounds like that was right on the edge of what you could get away with over there in terms of well, yeah. pushing the limits. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, you you make these decisions of the tactical situation at the time and. Uh, I'd never take it away from anybody, you know, sometimes you get away with it, sometimes you wouldn't sort of thing. Yeah. Sometimes you, people would have to back off and come back and try again perhaps a little bit later. But yeah. the tactical situations change very rap rapidly and uh, people make the decisions and, and uh, hopefully it works out. Most times it seems to work out reasonably well. Okay. Yeah, sometimes you come out and say, thank heavens I'll have a beer tonight after that. You know? Oh yeah, you burnt your beer tonight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mick, thank you very much You're for welcome. coming on the show. It's been an honour to have a chat, and I'm uh, looking forward to uh, catching up with you in future tomorrow events. Thank you, and uh, yeah, pleasure to talk to you.
As pilots, we're always looking for ways to improve our proficiency and skills, and one of the best ways to achieve that is using a flight school dedicated to advanced skills training. In the Sydney area, that choice is the Australian Aerobatic Academy. From ab initio, advanced handling techniques, upset recovery training, right through to full aerobatic ratings, the Australian Aerobatic Academy provides thorough and professionally delivered courses to suit every pilot. And with bases at Bankstown and Wollongong, they've got Sydney covered. Go to aeroacademy.com.au to find out more or call 0404 065 201. The Australian Aerobatic Academy, taking your proficiency to the next flight level. Hi, this is Max Flight. Besides producing the Airplane Geeks podcast, I run the 30,000 feet aviation directory. If you have a look at the aviation podcast page, you'll find links to literally dozens of aviation podcasts. Go have a look and listen to a few. Then come back here and get the real deal at Plane Crazy Down Under. Game challenge begins. Launch. Circular orbit. Rapid rendezvous. Intercept and dock with International Space Station. All engine running. Push the ISS to higher orbit. Rescue EVA astronauts. Avoid space debris. Destroy debris with missiles. Protect the ISS for as long as possible. Deorbit. Land. Survive. All in a day's work. We had a pretty large bank. Okay, yeah, we've had a problem here. Most control, both autos. He's been at command override off. We've had shutdown. Leo. Low Earth Orbit. A game from SkyrocketCafe.com. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Okay, I'm joined on the line by the Australian team leader for the Women of Aviation Week, Tammy Augustine. Tam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, it's been a while since I caught up with you. I think the last time was, I think, the year before last at the Parafield Air Show. I think since then, uh, you've made some major changes. In fact, I think you're one of the uh, busiest aviators in this country. <laughs> I do tend to keep myself a bit busy. I um, certainly sometimes take on board too much that I can cope with, but anyway, that's all good. <laughs> Okay, so um, we, we might talk about that a little bit uh, later in the interview because there's, there's so much I'd love to talk to you about. You're doing some, some really, really interesting things. But uh, let's talk about the Women of Aviation Worldwide Week. That's coming up in the week March 3rd to 9th, uh, 2014. Can you tell me a bit about that and how Australia is involved in that? Well, Women of Aviation Worldwide Week is an annual event that's been running across um, across the globe in four different continents over the last four years. And up until now, Australia hasn't participated in this initiative. What, what the initiative is, it's a drive to encourage females to look at aviation and from all aspects and all fields. So either as a hobby or a career, um, whether it be in our defence or air traffic control or you know, engineering, any of those areas. 
So it's basically a drive to increase our declining numbers, which is an un- unfortunate thing that we are seeing happening across the globe. So um, basically what it is, it's, it's a, world, a week-long event and it's held across different countries and it all incorporates International Women's Day, which falls on the 8th of March annually. And um, basically what it is, each um, individual or event is um, set up to encourage women to come out, have a look at aviation, see what we have to offer and the opportunities that are available um, to them. And also they have some challenges which are um, set forward. If you have a look on the website, you'll see we have what's called the Flight Forward Challenge. And the whole purpose of this challenge is to get as many women in the air during that week and let them experience the thrill of going up for a fly for the first time. So statistically, you know, that's helping to expose a lot more girls to aviation as well. With these events, most of these flights are free. So it's um, all at a very, very reduced cost, you know, very minimal overhead cost. So we have um, a lot of people that certainly get behind the events and support and sponsor the events. Um, we've been lucky enough here, in, I'm based in Bathurst now, and um, we're doing an event here and I've, I've already got over 70 girls booked for flights during the day and Aero Refuelers has sponsored us for that, so they're going to be donating the fuel for that. And we've had a lot of support from the community, a lot of pilots as well donating their time and their aircraft, all free of charge. So it's a wonderful initiative. It really is such a great honour to be involved in it and to have brought it to Australia for the first time. Um, We have, I think we've got 10 events being registered across Australia in different states. So you can certainly um, get on the website and have a look, see what's happening in your state and go along and um, see what Women of Aviation Week is all about. And I should mention to our audience, uh, Tanda, that's uh, womenofaviationweek.org and I'll mention that again uh, before we finish this interview. Uh, One of the things we often talk about uh, on the show here is uh, that aviation is not only about being a pilot, but uh, obviously there's uh, many other roles. Uh, air traffic control is one that comes to mind. Maintenance, of course. Does this week also incorporate those sorts of aspects? Absolutely. So we've got. I've been so thrilled to have the RAF come on board with their initiative as well. They're, they're going to be driving their initiative across Australia as an encouragement to get women into uh, different aspects of aviation roles within the defence. And um, we've also got air services coming on board as well. And they're going to be obviously promoting what they do and um, encouraging females to look at those areas for careers as well. So we've got also another one I thought of, which is CASA. Um, CASA has been very supportive of our events and they are also going to be promoting careers within within their organisations. So, um, you know, there's lots of different areas that women can look at and, and I think it, that's a lot of the reason that women probably don't realise what opportunities are out there for them because they haven't had the chance to see um, what is on offer. And it's not just about being a pilot. You know, there's so many wonderful careers in aviation and, and also hobbies that can be taken And, you know, like we have the Women in Gliding Week, which is also going to become hopefully part of this initiative um, next year in Australia. So, you know, we've got lots of areas that girls and women can certainly participate in. And it would be great to see our numbers increase because we are unfortunately on the decline rather than the increase, especially in recreational and GA areas. So, you know, it'd be nice to see people get some exposure to what's happening in aviation and 
and um, what they can experience and um, how they can pursue it and talk to people that have done it and can share their experiences as well. I think that's often a point, isn't it, that's overlooked. When a lot of people talk about getting into aviation, I think, uh, at least uh, from my point of view, is that a lot of people think, oh, yes, I might do that as a career. But you make a good point there that you can also do it as a hobby. I mean, yes, it's an expensive hobby, but, uh, you know, you and I are both pilots. We know once aviation gets into your blood, it never gets out. And uh, I think uh, particularly with the increase in popularity now of the recreational sector, I think, you know, that's that's certainly something that needs to be explored. People can do this for a hobby if, if that's their passion. Absolutely. And and it is becoming, I believe, a little bit more affordable in, in certain areas as well, especially in RA um, in comparison to, to GA, as we all know. But, you know, like even just getting involved with your local aero club or the communities as far as, you know, the cadets and the league, the air leagues and all that, you know, there's lots of things you can volunteer your time in as well. And to become, you know, we've always said, and, and I'm a big believer that it does take a community to grow a pilot or to, you know, foster that sort of um, GA experience or RA experience. So the community input is, is so important to exposing people to what's available. And, um, you know, we, we all have to have that big network of support. And we've, all, we've always had a great... Um, rapport with people coming through and sharing our experiences or I personally have not I'm sort of really proud of the fact that I hopefully have inspired people to to look at aviation and you know we have many different organizations such as the Women's Pilots Association and you know we've got Antique Aeroplane Association, we've got Warbirds Associations, all these wonderful organisations that are all there to offer a diversity of, of um, opportunities and interests for people as well. So I think it's definitely worth looking at it. And you don't have to be a pilot to enjoy aviation. You know, you can experience many other aspects of it. Absolutely. Of course, you can be a podcast listener, if nothing else. That's what I always tell people. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about, um, you know, the you, know, you were saying that uh, the numbers are declining, I guess, within the ranks of uh, female participation. But I find this is an industry-wide thing, regardless of uh, males or females. But uh, women, for some reason, have always been rather underrepresented in terms of their numbers in this industry. Is there any, I mean, we've talked about this before with, with yourself and several others. Why do you think this is? Personally, like um, a lot of people put it down to uh, financial situations and um, I think within my experience with being involved especially with AWPA which is the Australian Women's Pilots Association we see women coming into our organisation at, at a lot of different ages and I think um, a lot of women choose to you know, have a career in their family first and then get in, involved in aviation and some women also choose to take it on as a career straight out of school so it is a very diverse age group that comes into aviation from a female perspective, and I'm probably sure it's the same for the guys as well. But I'm not, I don't really know to put an exact point on what, why we are low in numbers. I'm, I'm not sure if it's because, and I don't want to say it's a boys' club because I don't believe aviation nowadays is a boys' club, and I've never had a really bad experience with, um, you know, being around the guys out at the airport or anything. If anything, I believe they're more encouraging and more supportive to me because I am a female and they tend to help me out quite a lot, which, you know, is I don't see that as a negative thing. I see it as a really positive thing. With in regards to, you know, how perhaps other women perceive aviation, maybe that's our perception that we need to change and 
and I think maybe educating women to see that, you know, there are opportunities there and there are roles that they could take within the aviation field um, that are probably more supportive to, you know, being a mum and, you know, a caregiver at home as well and that you can juggle the two and it can be done. Um, I believe, especially in our professional aviation now, um, with our airlines and that they are far more receptive to women um, that they're having their babies and, and they're very supportive and they offer a great network behind that. So, you know, the industry is making a lot of really positive changes and this is, you know, I see this as a great opportunity for women to come on board and participate and get involved now when, when all this network and this foundation support is there. We're seeing the same thing happening with the RAF you know, they are really driving to get women in into the roles. And I think the defence pretty much across the board is doing that because it hasn't sort of been um, an area, I guess, that they thought was an issue until now we start seeing all these downturns over the last couple of years and the numbers are dropping off. And, you know, people have realised that they have to make some changes and I believe that that's been done. And I see it, this is a moving forward for us, it's only going to get better and easier for girls and women to get involved. And the more women we get out there, the more network and support there is. And I personally, from my experience with with dealing with um, aviation and especially with organising these events and some of the events across Australia for Women of Aviation Week, you know, we couldn't do it without the guys. We, we make up such a small percentage of numbers that, you know, if the guys weren't supportive of us, we couldn't get this initiative happening and it wouldn't be as successful as it has been. So I, I think that the aviation community in general is is behind this and I think they're all extremely supportive of it from what I've personally experienced. And, you know, I can't see this really. I, I just can see this momentum going and we'll grow and grow and grow and we'll get that word out, you know, to all the girls and women out there and we'll get some more numbers. And, um, you know, that hopefully the decline will... We'll see, and we'll see some increases numbers, which would be great. Yeah, that would be really good to see. I remember one of my really early flying instructors um, when we were talking about reasons for doing flying. I remember him saying to me words to the effect of, "You know, if nothing else, it's really nice to have a skill that not everybody else has." So, you know, I think um, you know, any time I've come across female pilots, it's more a matter of mutual respect. I mean, it's it's we've all had to go through the same sort of training regime to get to wherever we are, and it's it's certainly not something that's um, you know gender exclusive, is it? I mean, anybody can do it if they have the will to do it. Absolutely. And and it, it is a privilege to hold a license and it is a very well-earned one. And I think that, um, you know, we've all strived for the same common goal. And, um, you know, as I said, I think that, you know, maybe society or there's been something in place previously that has put a few barriers up. Going back a number of years ago, probably well before my time, I know there were some challenges for women back then. And, I don't see that as being a problem now. I think that that has been well and truly overcome. Um, I think the challenge that we face um, as a gender is that we need to share with women that, you know, you can do this too. It's not just for the guys, you know. It's, it is the girls can get involved as well. And I, I think that we do work as hard as the guys. I don't think there's any preference to anyone working harder than the other or anything like that. Like you've said, we, we all earned it and we all had to go through the same pathroads to get there. So, yeah, I think it's just about uh, really about sharing a positive, you know, a positive vision 
and a positive goal, which is to try and increase our numbers and get more girls out in, in the aviation roles. Well, I tell you what, uh, when I, you know, I always often talk to people about, you know, aviation getting in your blood. There's no better way to do it than to take people up for, um, you know, free flights and, and get them get them interested and hopefully get them hooked. It's it's a very healthy addiction. Oh, it is, it is, and I think you know, there's nothing more, like you say, more thrilling than seeing a person's face when you when you take them up for that first flight, and it really is a joy to be able to share that. And um, as I said, I, I personally feel it's a privilege to hold a license and, and I, I love to share that with people and be able to give them an experience that they hopefully will take with them through the rest of their life and share with other people. And, and that's really what um, Women of Aviation Week is about, is about sharing what we love and getting other people passionate about our passion and um making them hopefully see what we see <laughs> or scare the pants off on one or the other. Yeah, well, well, maybe both. Maybe they'll get a thrill from that. <laughs> <laughs> Mo, the first time I went uh, for an aerobatics ride, it scared, it scared you know, the bejesus out of me. But, uh, you know, I was still up there and still flying, so there you go. Yes, exactly. And it's all an experience, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It certainly is. Now, if people go to womenofaviationweek.org, they can uh, find links there and find uh, pe- not, not only in Australia, but, uh, you know, all around the world where people can go and uh, find these events. Yes, during that week, we have many different things happening across the globe. And, um, you know, you can just go on, have a look. You just need to uh, have a little uh, on the webpage, you go to the participate link and it'll say view events and then you can view the events across the world and see what's happening in different countries. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping that as a country for Australia next year, we, we're going to have more momentum from this year and we're going to be bigger and have more events happening. And it's really exciting to see us on the globe and represented as a country. And I just want to show them how we do things down under. You know, like I think we, we do it really well in Australia as far as aviation is. We, we're very safety conscious. We train our pilots very well and we train our aviation people extremely well. And I think that it's really important that we share that with the rest of the world and um, you know we, we sort of we have a lot to offer and I think that there would be opportunities for for women um, and guys as well to to see what we can we can achieve and um, share it with with everybody and we, we have a Facebook page as well so you can get on the website you can like the Facebook page um, and I would really encourage Anyone, if they want to get involved, you don't have to organise an event. You can participate on an individual level. So during that week, if you, for example, wanted to take somebody up for a fly for the first time, um, obviously we're, we're wanting you to take some females up, but if you want to do that, you can register your flight online and you can register all the details. And that actually goes to counting um, towards the statistics, which is, you know, a lot of it is the numbers game. We, we really need to see some statistics and um, some feedback from where we're at as a country. Uh, as I said, the numbers aren't overly um, visible for us across Australia. We haven't really had full-on definite statistics. It's very hard to get all those details. So we're, being a first time for us, we really want to measure and put the foundations down for next year and say, well, this year we want to beat what we did last year uh, globally. Last year they introduced over 17,000 women to aviation and out of that 17,000, I think it was about 5,300, 5,400 went for a flight for the first time. Outstanding. So, yeah, so we'll be adding to those numbers as a country, which is great, um, but also it'll give us statistics for our country and it's um, something we can work towards next year to increase that number and, and um, improve on it. So. 
that's my goal and um, hopefully I'd like to bring one of the world titles up for, for grabs and, and put that on the Aussie shelf of ones that we can put to our name, which would be great. <laughs> yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Well, if that happens, uh, in fact, I'd love to catch up with you once the uh, week has uh, you know, been through and finished uh, just to you know, follow up and see how we went with that. Absolutely. Um, we'll be lodging all our numbers. Uh, I think we have about seven days to collate everything and then we'll be submitting all the numbers to the international team. Um, and as I said, I, I really hope that we could win one of the titles and um, Australia can be represented across the world as being the holder of perhaps most female-friendly airport or the Flight Forward Challenge winner. Um, one of those titles would be fantastic. Excellent. Okay, well, there's a challenge, everybody. So make sure we uh, we get out there. We want at least to have that title there just as a bit of a, a bonus. But obviously, you know, the, the goal here is to um, get as many uh, women as we can, uh, you know, introduce to aviation and, and let's hope we get some future, uh, you know, participants in aviation in, in so many fields, not just flying. That would be fantastic. Tammy, we talk about uh, female role models. You know, I think you might be a bit of a, a role model yourself. Tell us about what you've been up to since last we spoke. Uh, you've, you've been racing jets and setting up charter companies and all sorts of things. Yeah, we have been doing a lot. Um, since I spoke to you at the Parafield Air Show, um, I did relocate to New South Wales and um, based here in Bathurst, and um, yeah, we do a lot. We do a lot of work here out of Bathurst. We um, we also have been involved with the Reno Air Racing, which I was lucky enough to go along last year and um, be the one of the crew, crew teams there and the chiefing of the uh, the ground crew, which was very exciting. Um, our race team, which is called CCT Racing, um, which represents circuit racing, so. I'm not sure if, if many of you are familiar with the Reno Air Race, but uh, last year it was its 50th year, and uh, they have different categories that you can race in from biplanes through to um, home-builds, and then, of course, we have the classics and then um, the jets. So we participated in the jet team, and there's a number of Aussie teams that go over and support the Reno Air Race, which is fantastic because um, it's, um, you know, they've had a couple of negative things happen over the previous years and it's um, it's one of those events that it's it's so unique, you know, there's nothing like it in the world and we would be really lost, I think. It would be such a shame if we, we lost the Reno Air Race because of, of its uniqueness and what it's all about. Um, but in saying that, what, what we do is we, we, we race a circuit and um, it's between, I think it's 50 and 200 feet and you're obviously going a couple of hundred miles an hour in the jet, so it's pretty pretty full on. And um, some of the best pilots in the world, and uh, you know we've got some amazing um, people that represent Australia over there as well. And yeah, the Aussies are really you get over there now, and there's Aussie flags everywhere and blown up kangaroos, and you know it's, it was the thongs with the Aussie flags, and we we have our little RV set up, and it's all like a mini Australia and, <laughs> and we're really representing the country over there and it's great. So there's Aussies everywhere over there, but Reno is such a fantastic uh, location. Uh, the elevation, I think it's 5,300 feet is the elevation. Hmm. So it's pretty high. Um, it's got two main runways and another cross runway and, and the longest runway I think is nine miles long. So yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty exciting um, environment. The the races run during September for a week, and we have what's called PRS, which is the Pylon Racing School seminars that um, the Reno people ho hold every year. And to participate in the race, obviously you've got to have a certain amount of skill 
and um, you need to go through and be able to qualify through these Poland Racing School seminars. So they're held in June and then we go over to the race in September. So it's it's very exciting stuff. I'm I'm really privileged to be a part of it and I feel like I'm just so lucky to, to be able to, um, you know, experience all these wonderful things. And, um, you know, this, this jet racing is, is huge and I'm, I'm hoping that we'll see more of it across other countries and they were talking about trialing things I think there was talk of one being in New Zealand and you know so there's a few things happening there and under the radar so to speak just yet I think it's all a, a bit of um, around the around the table over a couple of beer talk at the moment but, you know that they will progress to doing a little bit more and um, you know the Reno air race is just Absolutely fantastic. I love it. I can't wait to go again. We'll be going in June and um, we'll be going again in September and, and hopefully racing if we get through the pylon racing school and um, you're along with a couple of other Aussie teams as well. So you'll yeah, we have a good time as you do, heap of Aussies together. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a wonderful experience and if anyone ever had the opportunity to go, I, could, I just couldn't encourage you more because it's just so unique and to see... Some of these amazing aeroplanes, um, that, you know, historic aircraft as well, and it's just absolutely incredible. I, I walked out onto the ramp to get the jet ready for PRS last June, and parked next to it was this most beautiful Corsair with its wings folded up, and I nearly, I just sat down. I was like, oh my gosh, there's a Corsair. It's a real one. I've never seen a real one. And then a Bearcat taxis passed, and it's just like, it, it's just incredible what what you see and you know, you get to talk to the pilots and it's just, yeah, and you meet some just wonderful people. Um, one of the ladies that's racing the jet class, Vicky uh, Benzig, her name is, she's an American lady and um, she's so inspirational. She she almost has an all-girl crew and she flies an L-39 Albatross jet in the race and I think she came, she she placed last year, but she's, yeah, she's, she, she used to fly in the sports class as well. Uh, ex- amazing aviator and really wonderfully inspirational person is so and so encouraging to women again. So, yeah, I'd like to see um see a few more girls obviously up in the in the air racing as well. So maybe that's something I can work towards in another five or ten years or something. We'll see. <laughs> well absolutely. But I mean we were talking earlier about other roles besides being a pilot and I see here on the uh, CCT uh, racing website that you're the marketing manager. I mean all those sorts of things are just as important. I mean uh, you know a pilot can't get up in the air without a support team behind him. Well that's it and um, also since I've been a part of the team I've worked up to being in, in part of the crewing so I did the crew chiefing role uh, a little bit last year and I'll be hopefully going over as the crew chief this year and um, that involves you know a lot of ramp work and getting the jet ready and marshalling the aircraft and looking after the pilot as well and making sure it's all running really well. I've taken up a real interest in the engineering side of it and I have been doing a little bit of aircraft mechanical work as well so yeah I think there's so many different aspects that, that girls can certainly get involved in and it doesn't always have to involve flying, for sure. Absolutely, and that's that's all fantastic experience that you can bring back and, and demonstrate to you know to prospective uh, people coming into the industry, and particularly uh, young women who are you know perhaps I mean I've got a daughter myself who's uh, you know just uh, finished high school, and there's all sorts of uh, career streams that are opened up or career paths that they could choose. Uh, you know, interestingly, I don't see aviation at least down here in Victoria. Uh, in my experience, I haven't seen a lot of uh, aviation opportunities presented to them. So you know that's something we probably need yeah. to address going forward. And uh, you know, a lot of the larger companies. Are also um, 
driving this as part of their diversity and growth for their for the companies as well. I'm working with the Virgin team and I, I have a, a really great relationship with John Borghetti um, previously and he's extremely supportive of, of getting women involved um, on all levels. And um, Virgin, unfortunately, the timelines were too short for them to participate this year in Women of Aviation Week, but they are doing an internal participation and, and they're going to basically have a, a board for a Q&A session for their internal company members and there's going to be a number of women on that board um, that are represented throughout the company from you know pilots right through to Geraldine Chin Moody who is um, very, very uh, high up in the diversity program and you know through to managers and so forth. So you know these are corporate people. They they're not pilots, they're not engineers or aircraft, you know, they're not involved directly with aircraft, but they run the companies and they run divisions of the companies and they're all women and I, I was at so um I wasn't shocked because I could see Virgin as being that way, but I was so surprised to see some of the roles and the women that, that were leading those roles and they have um quite, you know, I think for an airline company, um, Geraldine did say to me they had one of the, I think across the globe, the most women in senior management roles running that company. So, you know, there is opportunities there as well. So it's not it's not just about, you know, being aviation as such. You can still diversify out and university degrees and things can also assist in gaining opportunities with a company like Virgin Australia or Qantas or whoever, you know, um, the airlines are going, wherever they're going, they're always going to strive to grow their their female um, base as well, and they see it as a um, as being an area that they need to grow, and that's why you know I think with Virgin especially that um, they were very excited to to hear about Women of Aviation Week, and they were very very keen to support it, but unfortunately being that it was just so it was you know three weeks away. Um, it was one of those things that unfortunately they couldn't quite pull together with the timelines as quickly as they would have liked. So they're doing an internal event and um, they've invited me to go up and, and be a part of that, which is really exciting. And um, I'm hoping that next year we can get them on board and, and they'll be able to maybe we have live streaming for the website um, during that week. And I'd, I'd like to get them um, on the 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 board of that live streaming and have someone represented for, for Virgin Australia as well. And I'm sure uh, if John Borghetti is uh, that, that uh, you know, enthusiastic about it, then, uh, you know, I don't think it would take too much arm twisting to get uh, Sir Richard Branson on board with that. And that's a really high profile person there. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because like I say, they are very, um, very supportive and they have certainly supported um, things that I've personally been involved with, especially through AWPA and with our um, CCT Racing, they sponsored us last year, which assisted us with airfares and um, with AWPA. John has come personally and he's been a Dime of the Aviators um, guest speaker for me in South Australia when I was president of AWPA there. And, um, you know, they, they've been very generous and very supportive. So there's certainly 
um, certainly a female-friendly organisation. Well, I'll tell you what, we are a much smaller organisation here at uh, Playing Crazy Down Under than uh, Virgin Australia, but we'd like to be uh, equally supportive. So, Tammy, I really appreciate you bringing this upcoming uh, week to our attention and uh, I really hope we can keep in contact uh, over the coming uh, weeks and months and uh, hopefully uh, you talk about the successes of it. Absolutely. We do have some events happening in Victoria, so I'd encourage you to go and have a look at those as well. Um, the RAS are holding their uh, week-long flying flying um, camp, I think, at East Sale. And um, we've got the Thai Bear Show, the girls from AWPA are going to be basically handing out information about Women of Aviation Week and all of our scholarships through AWPA. And also, I, I believe it's the Moorabbin Flying School are offering free flights for girls as well. So, you know, get on get online on the website, have a look. If you want to go for a flight, I'd encourage you to, you know, to or you think that someone that you know, you want to book them in, um, I'd encourage you to, to get on and book online because on the day, the, the bookings are fairly limited because they do encourage the online booking system. And, um, yeah, get out there, see what it's all about. And I'd love to hear some feedback of, it, of the event as well. So if you go, let me know. <laughs> no problem, no problem at all. Okay, and we'd like to encourage just thinking about it here, I'd like to encourage any of our listeners who uh, participate and get some women up there uh, flying and introduced to aviation. Well, we certainly like to hear about it here and, uh, you know, we might have a chat to you and pass those on to Tammy and her team. Absolutely. And like I said, anything that anyone has any questions or needs any assistance with any of that, they can contact me. Uh, My contact details are on the website and um, my email and everything's there. So they can give me a call, contact me via email and we can have a chat and um, you know, try and encourage as many people to get involved as possible. Oh, fantastic. Once again, folks, womenofaviationweek.org and just click on the tab there that says participate and you can find out all about local events and no matter whereabouts you are in the world. Good to know that we have uh, people not only listening here in Australia but uh, in other parts of the world as well. Tammy, it's been fantastic to catch up with you again. I'm sorry we've missed all these events you keep inviting us to but unfortunately my day job gets in the way but uh, I wish you every success with uh, this upcoming uh, week and I think it'll be a fantastic thing and let's hope we can talk again soon. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, there we go. And as I said at the top of the show, Grant, uh, you could find uh, no greater advocate, I think, in Australia for women's aviation than uh, Tammy Augustin. And you could just tell the uh, the absolute passion she has for aviation when she was talking about uh, some of the aircraft she saw there at uh, the Reno Air Races last year. So, uh, you know, that's that's the sort of enthusiasm we need to see. And uh, as she pointed out to me, I think does, uh, you know, women are so vastly underrepresented uh, in this game. And uh, it's it's always something that makes me wonder why, because it's just something that anybody can do if they have the, such a passion for it. Yeah, mate, it is a shame that uh, we don't have more ladies in aviation, although I'm seeing that number shift a little. Well, I seem to be encountering more ladies in aviation. Um, I'm hearing from people that while there are more in, the ratio is generally staying about the same. But I, for one, could do with quite a few more because uh, I've heard quite a number of people say that uh, they've known a number of ladies who fly better and are better students than many of the guys. So I'm all for that. Uh, Put a challenge out there and let's let everyone get out there and uh, see who can fly better in some of the competitions. Yes, and I tell you what, I just love the concept in general of, of a week that gets anybody interested in aviation. And we talk a lot about dream building on the show, and, and you know this is one way to do it. It's it's a lot more difficult these days, I guess, to do that with all this you know, security theatre going on around the place. So when we have an opportunity like that, you know, I'm sure it's not you know if if you were to bring a, a young a young lad along, I'm sure that they wouldn't mind uh, taking him up as well, and uh, you know introducing uh, some of the boys to, to aviation if they're interested in it as well. Even though the the week obviously focuses on on women, you know, I don't think uh, they would have any. Uh, 
uh, objection at all into uh, instilling the the aviation bug in anybody they can get their hands on. That's the one, mate. And I think we need to get more out there. We've got to find more ways of getting people over the fences and into the aircraft and flying. So uh, congratulations to Tammy for taking on the uh, the task. It's going to be a big job, but it's got a great payback. Not right away, but in the future, the payback is fantastic. And congratulations to you, Mr. McCarran, for getting so many interviews. I tell you what, uh, folks, if you're wondering why we called it Holler for a Marshal, there was a lot of marshals in this show. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a, at least a couple of air vice marshals. There's an air marshal. And uh, then there's everyone else as well. So uh, it's a lot of fun, really enjoying it. And it's just trying to make the commitment to have the time to do all the editing so I can get a lot of edits out while you're getting your stuff done and uh, hopefully that means more content for our uh, wonderful audience we'll have to see I'm not going to say this is going to be the how it is forever but uh, we're going to certainly give it a good jo- good go aren't we we certainly are now Grant uh, moving on from the Point Cook Air Show and uh, you know I guess this is uh, very pertinent to uh, people who are listening to the you know the show currently as it comes out obviously if you're listening to this 12 months from now well you know just forget it but, uh, <laughs> too late too late too late <laughs> but uh, the week after of course we mentioned this on the last show is the uh, the biannual tyre bear show and uh, we we wanted to make mention of that grant because uh, we're going to be down there doing our usual thing there but uh, well actually we're doing something that's not quite so usual for us grant and we're going to make the announcement here that because uh, you know you wouldn't let me do it in the last episode <laughs> <laughs> but we actually uh, have uh, secured the rights to produce uh, their official uh, 2014 tyre air show DVD so we're very very excited about that and not the slightest bit nervous well okay oh, no, a, a little bit nervous <laughs> <laughs> no it's going to be great it's going to be great we're going to have a number of uh, camera crews down there, all being directed by our video guru, Stephen Pam. So uh, obviously, you know, no pressure on you, Stephen, you know, to get it all right. No, no of course not. Just uh, He's just got to put up with me stress, stress, stressing. So yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a big project. Uh, we're looking to do a really good effort on the uh, DVD. So it's not just the main part of the show of uh, seeing the aircraft, hearing the aircraft and getting some uh, commentary and so on. Uh, we want to put even more into there uh, as extras and so on. So we'll see how it all comes out. We've got great hopes for it. And uh, yeah, I suspect that after the 9th of March, we're going to be very busy editing video. We're going to be very busy making Stephen Pam edit video. I mean, no, no, we'll be very, very, very busy doing lots and lots of editing. Now, folks, uh, that DVD will be $25 uh, when it comes out, uh, plus postage and handling. I think, Grant, we worked out that would work out at about $29. Yeah, I think that was the price that uh, we came to with the uh, Peninsula Aero Club. Yep. And, uh, yeah, we'll be uh, working it through them. The sales will all be through them. But uh, we'll have more on that as we get closer to release. Yes, or, of course, you can go to our website and have a look at the really cool video that we've made about it, a video about our video. Yes, it's a bit meta, isn't it? It's a video about buying contents of a video that we're working on. Okay, enough shameless self-promotion, at least for this episode. I think we better call it a day. Yeah, mate, I think uh, I think we should let everyone take a break from PCDU until our next episode. Thanks for listening in. And uh, just remember, there's lots more content to come. And as soon as Grant can get off his button, edit it, and Steve can wrap it and put it all together, we'll have more episodes out to you. Okay, I'll get that editing machine fired up. Until then, folks, let's see you all out there at Point Cook. And if you can't make it to Point Cook, well, uh, you know, at least get down there and meet us all at Tyre. We'll Look forward to seeing you then, folks. Cheers. Ciao, y'all. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU, and for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, or any advertising inquiries, go to our website, plainecrazydownunder.com. Playing Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production.
kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Most famous pilot I know. Oh, God. Here yeah. we go again. Oh, here we go again. This man knows Hello. all the again. Oh, yeah. So, where have you been? Have been around the world twice? How long is your battery in that thing? Because uh, this is going to go long. on for yeah, hours and hours. I know you hours. guys. <laughs> no, no, this man, he knows so much, he'll be able to tell you it all. I have my 89th in exactly two weeks. Do you think somebody's made a mistake somewhere? <laughs> probably on your birth certificate. They probably put the wrong date on there. Oh, is, that, is that how you got into the Air Force early? No, no, 18 was the... 18 was the... 18 was the... <laughs> 18 was the